Herzlich Willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hallo Rosa. Hallo Gudrun. I'm sitting here with you in the wonderful building of the Turin University. Uh, one is listening to our colleagues leaving the building after the last talk today on Thursday. So that's why there is a little bit of a racket. Um, I would like to show how wonderful it looks here because it's a really meaningful, nice building for doing science and for feeling you know, uh, connected to knowledge um, from deep down the ages. Maybe we put a picture to that in the show notes. Um, but of course, the science, the mathematics, which were discussed here, are the front uh, development of mathematics in a few fields um, of colleagues which were um, gathering here. And um, I ask you if you would take the time um, after this long day Uh, to have a conversation about dynamic sampling. Um, so maybe a good start, in my opinion, would be what is sampling about? And then to go over to what is the latest stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we, we met here at the micro-local and time-frequency analysis conference. And uh, both in micro-local and time-frequency analysis, sampling is crucial it's always important to think about which sampling strategies you would um, execute to get the optimal results or the best results. And optimal and best would be take as few samples and possible, as possible but get as accurate or an exact reconstruction of your, your function uh, that you're observing, your function of interest. So sampling theory let's call it the now classical sampling theory has been started with development for over that would be almost 70 years by now uh, somewhere in 1949 uh, there was this first result of um, mathematical description of analog to digital conversion of signal signal as in any function in mathematics is signal to engineers For example, if you have in front of your inner eye a sinus function, so this wonderful smoothing going from zero to one and then back to zero and to minus one and to zero back again, uh, and you don't really want to um, give this full um, function because you don't have the possibility to, to say it's a sinus and with the sinus to know what is the functional value for each x value, uh, you just want to look at certain places. So, for example, if you would look at zero pi and two pi and so on, you would always get back a zero, which right, is probably which not would such be a good sample. insufficient <laughs> sampling. Yes, yeah. even if you're taking a pi half step, uh, you would have insufficient sampling because with pi half steps, we'd be getting zero, one, zero, negative one, zero, and so on. So you'd be thinking that the graph of your function is maybe triangular-like. Yes. And uh, that's definitely not what the sine function is like. Um, Yes, so in that sense, you, you, you pointed out very well that uh, how often you sample is important uh, to obtain a 
perfect reconstruction or at least a good approximation of your uh, original mm. function. Um, with sampling theory, the, the original result is about a band-limited function, which would mean a function whose uh, spectrum support uh, is compact. And uh, it's been known since Shannon that uh, when sampling the function at a sufficiently dense rate, um, the samples convolved via a semi-discrete convolution with the sync function would give you an exact reconstruction of your original function. And uh, thus you would have the analog to digital conversion. Um, so since then there's been a lot of non-uniform sampling strategies explored because both in theory and in applications, you might not want to sample at exactly the same rate. Um, in applications, you all have the impossibility of sampling at the exact same rate, if for nothing else than for the error of measurements. Yeah, because this is both, you have to decide where you want to measure and then you know you never measure exactly. Right, yeah. exactly. Yes, yes. No matter how precise your equipment is, you still have the inherent error of measurement um, with respect to location or with respect to time. Mm. Um, yes, so an additional challenge uh, when in applications of sampling theory is that you very often don't have access to have enough samples or you simply are facing the challenge of having equip, uh, expensive equipment, expensive sensing equipment. So you, you are only allowed for whatever reason to use a few sensors, but you still want to reconstruct perfectly or as accurately as possible. And that's where dynamical sampling strategies are introduced. <laughs> so this is um, in contrast to static dynamical um, dynamical as in um, you're observing a phenomenon which is has spatial domain, uh, for instance, heat distribution, hmm. um, but is evolving, is changing over time. So the temperature in this uh, beautiful inner courtyard of the university was quite high over around midday. And now it's dissipated towards a very pleasant temperature. So this time evolution of the temperature distribution is an example uh, where dynamical sampling strategies would be useful yes. and could be implemented. Yes. So the dynamical refers to the fact that it's a process which develops over time. Yes. The phenomenon of interest would be um, evolving over time under the influence of some bounded operator mm. so uh, in front of my inner eye um, there is the process where I try to take a sample and to make some um, assumptions afterwards when I first came to the sea and wanted to observe high tide and low tide and uh, I was thinking that we were walking all the time so I was taking samples over the first two days and I was really um, very <laughs> very unhappy about the fact that it was really not possible to guess when, when the high tide takes place. Ah. <laughs> yeah, because you kind of you have a feeling now it's ki kind of in between and uh, you can observe that it's going away or coming and then you make certain guesses and they are never true. 
So my sampling was not enough for sure. Right, <laughs> and right. In, in the end, we um, bought a table to know when the high tide is there <laughs> and to really observe it. And it was uh, worse. <laughs> yes, it sounds like you also didn't have good uh, understanding of the evolution operator, <laughs> uh, which would be a challenge in uh, dynamical sampling as well. Mm -hmm. uh, knowing the evolution operator is crucial. Fortunately, um, we have the strategies of how to learn about the quality or the, the um, characteristics of the evolution operator so that we could use a few sensors and yet obtain perfect reconstruction. And I would mention the paper of Sui Tang, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, regarding a system identification. And uh, it's a good read on uh, learning how to understand the evolution operator so that you would use it further uh, towards dynamical sampling strategies. Mm. So the evolution operator for my tight example would be how the front waves um, come near the um, boundary, so to say, on the beach. So what would be the most forefront line they they reach at which point in time, and then going back over time to some point, which of course is also dependent on time because it's not always the same. But you know, for my two weeks holidays, there might not be so big differences depending <laughs> on where they are. I'm assuming the average rate of change would not have been a good way to describe what has happened uh, because, as you said, each time you thought you understand what happened, it was a little bit different. It was a little bit different, yes. Too many mistakes in my assumptions, for sure. Um, so what would be applications? Um, you, just one example where you um, prefer to take samples and um, what would be questions you ask to the measuring I like the example regarding neuron activity um, to justify the um, the necessity of using few sensors. When you're measuring neuron activity, you can only use one sensor or you will kill the neuron. So clearly sometimes it's impossible to use a sensing network, mm. even if you'd argue that... but. Sensors are cheap and getting cheaper. Uh, I can use a wide network. I can use a rich network to, to get a lot of samples at, uh, in one snapshot. So uh, the neuron activity example is a good example that describes the necessity of using few sensors. And even in other applications, it's often uh, that happens if you are having a too dense of a sensing network your sensors will start to influence your phenomena and you will have to cope with the change uh, that has uh, um, happened as a result. Mm. So it's always better, it's very often better to, to use few sensors for that purpose too, to not disturb the um, phenomenon of interest. Yes. So um, what type of uh, mathematical questions uh, would you then um, have and how would you answer them? The first few questions regarding dynamical sampling uh, had been about um, using uniform sampling grids so the spatially um, layered out network of sensors would, would have uniform distribution and then the question would be um, how 
wide or narrow this grid should be uh, related to the uh, evolution operator at hand and how often you should resample over time that related to the dimension of the problem. Uh, clearly, if your signal is described in the frame of uh, tens thousands uh, dimensions, you would need a lot more samples. Um, the trivial example of taking dynamical sampling would be simply think about a, a uh, vector, so a finite dimensional signal of, say, four entries, so it's of dimension four, and uh, you only have one sensor, but you can apply it at one fixed location. And uh, suppose that the evolution operator acting on your signal is just rotation. Mm -hmm. So um, the coordinates of the vectors are x1 through x4. And after one application of your evolution operator, the coordinates have shifted for one place. So um, x1 has moved to the second coordinate and so on. And then x4 comes as a first coordinate. And suppose that the evolution operator is acting multiple times over time. Uh, that would mean that at the first coordinate, you would have x1 at time 0. Then you would have x4 at time 1. Then you would have x3 at time 2 and x2 at time 4. So essentially, if you just keep your sensing device at the first coordinate location and you measure four times you would get all of the information from your original signal. And clearly, uh, mathematically interesting questions are when the evolution operator is not just rotation and uh, when the problem is not as trivial. However, it's been surprising that the Poisson summation formula uh, was very useful in, in these cases where uniform sampling grids are used. And... Uh, perfect reconstruction is coming uh, very easily. There are certain constraints on the evolution operator regarding um, invertibility of a certain matrix that shows up um, in the observation of the relationships between the sample data, the, uh, the later time sample data and the original signal. But these are um, easily overcome. Yeah, so it has to be kind of good-natured relation. It has to be a good-natured relation somehow. Yes. Which is mathematically more precise in the theorems. Exactly. Um, when introducing irregular uh, grids in dynamical sampling, it's even more obvious that there has to be a good connection between the quality of your evolution operator and the location uh, of your sensors. Um, a good example of a irregular sensing grid would be um, throwing out a, a bunch of sensors from the airport, from the airplane, mm -hmm. and then that would be a random distribution of your sensors. Um, you let your sensors measure the change uh, over time, and then you you were hoping to get enough samples and enough um, enough quality in these samples to reconstruct the original data. Uh, clearly, where the sensors would land um, would make a difference. And uh, yes, there's a lot of mathematical uh, 
exploration towards figuring out what the locations of the sensors would be to be able to reconstruct perfectly uh, if you know what your evolution operator is. Um, when you're talking about samples and reconstruction, the natural uh, question would be regarding bases and frames. Uh, so these would be the standard tools that you'd mm. be using. Yeah, the basis helps to represent the process, so the kind of the model we, which we make of the process. And with the help of the model, we are able then to um, calculate things and then translate it back into the real-life application. Exactly. And a frame is just a generalization of a basis. Uh, it just has often more um, frame elements than the standard basis for the particular um, dimension of your uh, space. It turns out, of course, that where you're placing the sensors spatially um, would matter if you're having a perfect reconstruction simply because the sensors placements and the evolution happening uh, under the repeated actions of your operator are forming a frame or not. <laughs> so whether you have a frame um, in, this, in this way or not would be an equivalent uh, to asking whether I can reconstruct perfectly or not. What would be next step um, mathematicians would like to go? A couple of applications that have happened in um, solving PDEs uh, from, uh, starting from some initial data uh, have emerged and I can uh, offer a few links of uh, these, these applications happening. So the first uh, paper of that type that I've read was by Enrique Zuazua. I noticed that you had interviewed him for your podcast as well. Um, he and Rendezvous had been solving the heat equation under assumption, certain assumptions about the initial uh, conditions. Um, and of course, you'd say, well, even Fourier had solved this. Uh, what's there to be solved? But their assumption was that instead of knowing the initial conditions, you only know the class of functions describing the initial conditions, and you have access to only one sensor, so you're basically measuring the temperature at only one location, even though spatially the temperature is described by a variant function. And, of course, temporarily as well, these things would change. So by placing the sensor at a crucial location and by taking later time measurements at crucial moments, um, you can reconstruct perfectly the full solution, general solution to your PD. And uh, we've been generalizing uh, such problems to equations um, that are involving linear combinations of higher um, uh higher order derivatives and also a generalized heat equation involving time variant coefficients and so on and it, it turns out that things are working it doesn't matter whether you know the full initial conditions or you have snapshots of later uh, time conditions you would still be able to solve your problem That sounds so fascinating because this uh, sounds like so poor measurement. But uh, if you have the information uh, where to measure, then this can be enough. 
Yes, it sounds as poor measurements simply because you, you don't have many sensors. Yeah. You have a sensor. Mm. But the data has been scrambled with the mm. evolution over time. So you're getting scrambled data, but you have sufficiently many data to reconstruct. And that's the beauty of it. The extra moment that is happening in um, uh, this application is that you don't necessarily have to sample sufficiently to get a good approximation. So taking a few measurements would give you a good enough approximation. And such results have not been explored within the frame community um, regarding frames of iterative actions of operators, that is, frames uh, generated uh, in setups of dynamical sampling. Um, usually people have been asking their when can I reconstruct perfectly? Not how much do I need to sample to have a good approximation? When do I stop to have an approximation good enough? So that's an open problem uh, within the dynamical sampling uh, community. Mm. Yes, and that's always uh, a decision depending on your preferences or depending on what questions you want to answer. Um, if you are uh, in for uh, reaching perfection, or if you are in um, to justify a rough approximation? The approximation of the solution uh, regarding the PDAs that I'm discussing um, converges to the exact solution if you take Enough infinitely samples. many samples, yeah. of course, because you're working in an L2 setup. So, um, of course, you need it's an infinite dimensional setup, so you, you need infinitely many samples. But there, the new thing is, the new moment is that you control um, the decay of the tail uh, very easily. Yeah, this is for a mathematician, the decay of the tail. <laughs> no, but this kind of links in my head to your initial um, starting point with Shannon, because um, he asked the question that what is information and answered that um, an information is um, especially useful if it answers a lot of things you didn't know before if it answers something which you knew um, before somehow uh, then it's not so useful information and uh, this is strongly connected to your explanation that we measure uh, at certain crucial times and crucial moments because these are precisely at the points in the time-space um, continuum where we really get this new information, something which we didn't know before, which really gives us new insight into the whole process. Yes, useful versus useless measurements yeah. is always a, a good question to answer, a good problem to, to resolve in applied mathematics. Yes, um, this um, to me this sounds like it's a combination of, of course, doing a lot of um, analytical um, um, work, so to say, because, for example, if you are speaking about, we have a look at the convergence of things and what does it mean translated into um, having the full information, things like that, and also proving uh, where are the uh, useful points um, to look at. It's an analytical question, but if you really want to have um, the applications, it's probably only uh, done with the help of the computer. So how much numerical work is involved in your daily work? Right. 
Of course, I have to do computational work as well. Um, however, since I'm pure, uh, primarily a mathematician, yeah. I'm always more interested in having the proof yes. versus having the um, experimental um, feedback that something works. Because usually, if you have if you have a result that is mathematically proved, then definitely your your experimental uh, Feedback is going to be affirmative. Uh, so yes, in in that sense, I'm I'm s still more interested in making sure that something works mathematically, uh, because the implementation would then be guaranteed. Yeah. Um, so what was your entrance into this field? So what motivated you um, to think about questions of sampling? Um, my PhD was in the area of time frequency analysis and uh, I was interested in um, sampling and reconstruction in the time frequency plane of course since my topic of interest was functions of variable bandwidth as in functions whose uh, spectrogram lives in uh, a particular region in the time frequency plane with varying local bandwidth um, the question of when to where to sample was arising naturally so sampling strategies have been of my interest and i was just fortunate enough to talk to a person who was already thinking about this question and uh, i jumped on the train yes um but of course um when you decide to become a mathematician at least i didn't really meet someone before starting to become a mathematician who already knew that uh, those topics are mathematical topics at all. So there should be a moment uh, during the time you studied mathematics or, you know, where you somehow kind of took the direction. <laughs> I, I have to say that over my mathematical uh, education and uh, um, research, I simply had the affinity of thinking about, pondering about problems that are applicable at least. It seemed useless to, to put a lot of thinking energy into a problem that just lives in some abstract uh, area and perhaps it's just a, a matter of, of affiliation, of uh, wanting to, to see the use of, of my results in real life and um, so you kind of turn to these type of topics yes I was I was simply looking for something mm. that would be applicable and hopefully applied one day yes so you have worked at different places um, um, in Vienna I've seen in your CV in Macedonia in different places in the US um, does it feel uh, really different in the mathematical culture to work uh, in these different places or is kind of mathematics something which is the same wherever you turn? So within the mathematical community um, these collaborations are increasingly easier with the use of internet. Yeah. Uh, we've been writing a paper um, sitting on three continents uh, lately and uh, trying to find the right time to Skype. So um, Perhaps there is some difference in the local culture. Mm. Um, 
even within the mathematical community as it is. Uh, personally, I, I found uh, the academic culture in the U.S. very very comfortable, very interesting, very challenging. Um, and the general can-do attitude of Americans is really good uh, for science, especially for mathematical sciences. Yeah. So this means um, you feel um, you can contribute there very much and feel welcomed with your, um, first with your knowledge, but also as a person. Yes, you might, you might say that, not just professionally, but privately. Yeah. I find it uh, really comfortable, yes. When every, every discussion and every conversation is in the yes and <laughs> uh, direction, Yes. And not in the no, but. <laughs> in Germany, very often it would be yes, but. <laughs> a yes, but. <laughs> With a very capitalized but. It doesn't work because we do it like that, like all the time and we can't change. I forgot the reason why, but there must be a reason. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> things like that. No, it's, it's just partly true. A lot of things changed here as well. Um in the educational system, so when we um, want to produce the next generation of mathematicians, of course there are uh, differences between European countries and also differences to the US. Um, so what is um, your standard student? Is it a mathematician or is it an engineer? So at the Mathematical Sciences Department at Ball State, mm -hmm. where I work, uh, we have five mathematical programs. So we have a master's in mathematics, uh, we have a master's in actuarial sciences, then a master's in statistical sciences, we have math ed, so mathematical education uh, master's. And uh, so I would say that the typical classroom would be a mix of students in all these majors. Um, it's very often that we would even have a um, student coming from economy, business and economy. They They like to have real analysis in their uh, curriculum. Um, and yes, computer science students and so on. So I have a, a mix of, of students in my class, yeah. Yes, I also prefer that. <laughs> but, um, it, it can be very interesting when you yeah. assign group uh, projects to students uh, of diverse backgrounds because um, they, while they struggle at the beginning to understand each other's languages, they, they produce more simply because they're coming in with different strengths. Yes. So in our case, since my field is fluid dynamics, this is a field where you have um, very different contributions from different backgrounds. So we have people doing fluid dynamics in mechanical engineering and computer science in physics and a few mathematicians on the theoretical side, on the numerical side. And so from this experience, um, I was thinking that it is much more fun to collaborate uh, with people from different backgrounds. And then I was kind of taking this over to also have um, the possibility to draw students of these um, different programs together in first in doing fluid dynamics but then also kind of in types of modeling courses things like that and i enjoy these classes very much that's great yeah. sounds good yes yes i'm um, i'm excited that we will be having a um, industry related research experience for our students next academic year 
so in spring uh, 2019, we're um, running a semester course uh, where students would group up and collaborate jointly with uh, industry representatives to solve or at least propose a solution to some of their uh, problems, which can be modeled mathematically. Yes, and that will not be all about sampling. <laughs> no, that's just, you know. <laughs> true, true. They would have to uh, work with some raw da data and then try to model something and uh, reinterpret what they're observing. Yes. So, um, then I'm thanking you very much for taking the time to talking with me. And thank you for the invitation. This was very interesting. I was, uh, like I said uh, before we started recording, I was skeptical about how a math discussion would go without writing down anything, without writing a single formula. Uh, but it it seems like we we uh, understood each other without the formulas as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.